If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Death Mask of Tutankhamun is the most recognizable face of ancient Egypt. But I'd say that coming in at a close second is the bust of a beautiful woman. Hauntingly lifelike, she wears a distinctive flat-topped blue crown or wig, one eye missing, the other carved from rock crystal, fixing you with an enigmatic gaze. In this new History Extra podcast series on Tutankhamun, we're marking the centenary of the discovery of the pharaoh's tomb by exploring his life, death and legacy. We'll travel back to the ancient empire the boy king ruled over and re-examine the contents of his tomb to investigate what his dazzling treasures and mummified remains can tell us about ruling and dying in ancient Egypt. The striking bust of Queen Nefertiti has captivated people since its discovery back in 1912. And in today's episode, we're going to try and get behind this beautiful image of Nefertiti to unravel some of the mysteries about who this royal woman really was. At first, this might seem like a bit of a left turn. I thought this was a series about Tutankhamun, I hear you cry, but bear with us because Nefertiti is a truly fascinating figure. And hopefully, by the end of the episode, her connections to the Boy King will have become clearer. Although, I'm not making any promises. To tell us more about this enigmatic ancient figure, I turned to two expert Egyptologists. They've both written extensively on ancient Egypt, including writing books on Nefertiti herself. So to tell us more, I welcomed Professor Joyce Tildesley from the University of Manchester and the University of Bristol's Professor Aidan Dodson. For listeners who are thinking, this is a series about Tutankhamun, why have we got a conversation about an entirely different ancient Egyptian royal? Can you help us out a bit? What are some of the connections that people draw between Tutankhamun and Nefertiti? Tutankhamun and Nefertiti have become, in particularly in recent years, really strongly connected. They lived at approximately the same time, they overlapped, certainly, and they both 
ancient world celebrities, if you like. And I think there's something very compelling about the idea that they are very, very closely linked together. So people who are interested in one tend to be very interested in the other, I think. And of course, beyond that, there are a number of Egyptologists who would argue that Nefertiti was Tutankhamun's mother. I think whichever way you look at it, she is the wife of Tutankhamun's probable father. But as with so many other things in Egyptology, the debate of exactly how the genetics work remains something up, up in the air. Don't worry, we'll delve into the debate about whether Nefertiti was Tutankhamun's mother or stepmother, or even grandmother, later in the episode. For now, let's get back to some of the other debates Egyptologists have over this queen from the 14th century BCE. What are some of the other debates that Egyptologists have about Nefertiti? Because there are a fair few, aren't there? I think one of the interesting things about Nefertiti is that we tend to assume that she was very beautiful, and really, that shouldn't matter at all. Beauty is is obviously skin deep. It doesn't matter. But it's one of the things that she's very famous for. And yet, I would say that we've got absolutely no evidence to show this whatsoever. It also depends on what you mean by beauty as well. Um, the other issues are around who her parents were, how her career went when she ceased to be purely Akhenaten's wife, how she died all of which are interconnected questions um, and some, in some ways your conclusion in one area then leads to your conclusion in another. I think it's important to point out, I think, that there are a number of different scenarios which are floating around for Nefertiti's life and the whole period itself. And a lot of those scenarios are mutually exclusive, yet all based on exactly the same raw data. And that is often quite difficult for people to get their heads around how you can be working with completely the same data, with the same level of expertise, yet come up with completely different conclusions. Absolutely. It's one of the things about Egyptology that isn't immediately obvious, because if you learn your Egyptology primarily from, say, television documentaries, they present a very black and white situation. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. But if you delve into it a bit deeper, and I would recommend everybody does that because it's a fascinating subject, you realise that nothing is, is in black and white. There are all sorts of different twists and turns. It makes it an absolutely fascinating subject, I think. Well, from what you've said there, my next question may be impossible to answer. But what is that set of bare bones of facts that we do know about Nefertiti? What can we pin down about her? I think the only thing we can be absolutely certain of is she was the wife of Akhenaten. I think beyond that, everything else is up for grabs. And remember... Akhenaten is the pharaoh believed by many to be the father of Tutankhamun. I would probably add the mother of at least six daughters. Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. But yes, beyond that, again, I agree. We think we know a lot of her. We're very familiar with her. We're familiar with her face, particularly from the famous Berlin bus. So we think we know her. But actually, when you try and nail down the facts, there are very, very few facts. There's a lot of other information and we can use it to draw conclusions. But as Aidan said, the facts are, are quite limited. So you mentioned there the Berlin bust, and I think this is the image of Nefertiti that most people at home would be familiar with. Um, this incredibly striking, one-eyed busk with an incredible headpiece on. What other sources or um, materials or artworks do we have that tell us about Nefertiti? Well, there's quite a lot over and above that. 
There's a huge amount of sculpture which was found, like the like the bust at Amarna, in three dimensions. There's also sort of two dimensional representations of her as well. There's also odd mentions of her on jar dockets, on graffiti, and things like that. So there's quite a bit of data out there, but very little of it actually leads to a firm conclusion about anything. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because if you compare her to Cleopatra, who I think is the other really famous Egyptian queen, Cleopatra's story is more or less told in writing through through the Romans, not necessarily accurate writing, but it's in writing, whereas Nefertiti's story is very much told in art, I, I would say. And this, this is one of the reasons why we have so much room for speculation. So the very important graffiti that Aidan's mentioned is, is, is rare in giving us some actual written facts about her. So let's try and unpick what some of the theories about Nefertiti's life are. Let's start with her origins and her identity. What are some of the ideas about who she was and who her family was? Well, a quite a um, widely held suggestion is that she may well have been um, a cousin of her husband, being a daughter of I who later becomes pharaoh. He's an army general. We don't know anything about, certainly about his origins, but his titles and the form of his name suggest he might have been a brother of Queen T, who was the wife of Amenhotep III, Akhenaten's father. So there's a, a fairly good feeling that she could have been part of that overall family, and particularly part of what we've sometimes called the Achmima Mafia, which there's a group of individuals from a city... In the, middle, in the middle part of Egypt called Achmim, who seemed to have married into the royal family over a couple of generations. And so that's what we, th- we, th- we think she may be from a military family in Middle Egypt, but that's just one suggestion. Yeah, she seems to have a sister at court, and that suggests that she's Egyptian-born, because early Egyptologists were quite interested in the idea she might be a foreign princess who'd come to Egypt, married into the royal family and brought strange religious practices with her. But actually, there's no evidence to suggest that at all. Um, I would certainly agree with what Aidan said. Um, a cousin cousin to the king, um, a parallel family who, although they're commoners, they're not really commoners like you and I might be commoners. You know, they're, they're actually really high ranking themselves and they're constantly marrying into, into the, the royal family. So Nefertiti married Akhenaten and became a queen consort. What can you tell us about that role? Well, there's a couple of sort of aspects to it. One of, and the title she holds is King's Great Wife, which means she is the senior wife of the king. Part of the main role really is to make sure that the royal line continues. But also there seems to be a major ritual thing of being King's Great Wife. You are effectively the female counterpoint to the divine pharaoh. So there's a whole... Again, not something which we can fully understand, but there's clearly something ritual about it there. And it does seem that Nefertiti's status was particularly exalted as such, because we find her acting alongside her husband in a way that very, very few previous queens have done so on temple walls. And indeed, on one temple wall, she is the only officiant, um, along with her, her baby daughter. During the 18th dynasty, during which um, Tutankhamun and all all these others uh, ruled, female members of the royal family seem to have had a a particularly high status. But Nefertiti seems to sort of overtake even them in in her prominence. I'm not so sure about that, because I think we also have to 
So consider the fact that Amarna is so different. Amarna is the new royal seat that Tutankhamun's probable father Akhenaten established during his reign. And it gives its name to this era of Egyptian history. It's got a different religion and it's a religion where the elite are encouraged to worship the god via the royal family. So because of this, we have an exceptional amount of art which is then preserved because Amarna, the city, is never built over. And a lot of it survives. It's it's taken away to other sites and and, um, dotted a bit around Egypt, but it it survives. And I find it really difficult to try and work out how much of this prominence is due to the new religion and how much is actually due to her personal prominence because her mother-in-law, Queen T, is also very prominent. So when Aidan says it's it's a a group of prominent royal women, this is absolutely right. And I think her daughters, two of them, are also equally prominent. So this is she's a prominent queen in a group of prominent queens, I would I would definitely agree. But I think we just have to very slightly question how much the evidence that has survived is because of her particular circumstances, because no other queen of Egypt is is um a co-ruler or a a consort, whichever way you want to argue it, um, in such unusual circumstances. Just to be clear here, Nefertiti wasn't Akhenaten's only wife. In fact, the nature of royal wives in this period was a fairly complex one, and it's worth a bit of explanation. Kings of Egypt were polygamous. Um, They married many wives. Some of them were um, brought into Egypt as was part of diplomatic marriages. They would marry the king, and then they would go off and live in a harem palace. He didn't live surrounded by wives. The one wife who did live with him is the queen consort, and she would be the important royal wife in that she's the queen who's represented in art and writings. If if ever the royal family is depicted, it's her family. And the general expectation would be that her children, her sons, would go on to inherit the throne. So she stands for all wives, and you could say that she stands for all women, and during the Amarna period, possibly all female deities as well. So she's the important one, and there's a world of difference between her and the other wives, even the important foreign wives. And there are additional wives as well. There are Egyptian-born wives. We don't really know where they came from. Um, We don't know much about them. We don't really know what happens to their children at this time because the focus is entirely on the royal family. But we do know that Akhenaten had other wives because just occasionally we can see at least one of these royal wives called Kia. So we know that although Nefertiti was very important, there was at least one other very important wife, and there could well have been more as well. Kia is, is a slightly strange thing in the sense she holds a title which no other queen of Egypt ever does. She's the greatly beloved wife of the king, and that is a title we never find before or afterwards. So there's something strange about her about her context. Um, and also then she is disgraced at some point in the reign as well. So one would love to know what's going on with Kia, you know, whether she some have suggested she's a, one of these foreign wives. She's a very sort of shadowy figure. And in fact, there was a point in the 1920s where her disgrace led to assumptions about the relationship between Akhenaten and Nefertiti, because archaeologists found that there on on a particular building, the figures of the royal wife had all been erased and the names replaced by Akhenaten's eldest daughter. And at the time, we knew nothing about Kia. We didn't know she existed. So it was assumed that um, this was Nefertiti who'd been erased, and that there had been some major falling out. Later on, it was realised that it was nothing to do with Nefertiti. It was actually um, Kia who'd been erased. But what's interesting is the way that sort of ideas or working hypotheses 
can just carry on long after the evidence has gone. Um, and you still find in popular works the idea that Nefertiti and Akhenaten had a, had a falling out. And a few years ago, I was at Amarna, and the guard guide was sort of telling me about all this, and started bringing in Princess Diana as, as a parallel and things like that. So there are an amazing number of these zombie facts which are floating around in Egyptology, something which was a perfectly valid hypothesis 100 years ago. It was, it was dumped over 50 years ago, yet you're still finding people telling you it's a fact. I'm not even convinced that Kia was disgraced. I wonder if she just died. Because overwriting her name, to me, just suggests that the role that she was no longer performing was passed on to somebody else. It's clear that she's not there to do it for whatever reason. But is she even disgraced? It's Again, there's, there's no direct evidence. I would say there is in the sense of... If the names had been just gently erased and replaced, but they seem to have been hacked out and then secondarily somebody thought, ooh, we need to put something else in the, in the same place. It looks a bit too violent to have been just a neat, well, she's dead, we're now passing on her material to somebody else. That, that example just really shows how we're using all the available evidence actually to its limit, that we're looking at the depths of alterations and inscriptions and things to try and work out what's happened. Again, I mean, to me, this is what is absolutely fascinating about ancient Egypt. Well, you did say before the recording, didn't you, that, you know, you won't find two Egyptologists that agree about everything. Let's turn now to one of the biggest debates around Nefertiti and her status, which is, was she a pharaoh? Did she hold power in her own right? What are some of the theories for this? Well, basically, the thing is that we do we know that at the very end of Akhenaten's reign, a female pharaoh called Nefenefru Aten appears as his co-ruler. Now, the question has always been, who is that female pharaoh, Nefenefru Aten? The approach I take is sort of, it sort of, has sort of two prongs to it. One, Nefenefru Aten had been part of Nefertiti's name since the early part of her marriage with Akhenaten. In full, from about year three or so onwards, she was Nefenefru Aten, Nefertiti. And also that we, at the point where Nefenefru Aten appears, Nefertiti appears to disappear. So the fact that she has the same name as the, the female pharaoh, and the um, overall context seems to work. And also, who, el- who else is there? Now, there are some other, other candidates, but I think of the, of the various candidates for being Nefenefru Aten, Nefertiti has to be the leading one. Let's pause for a moment here, because this is a bit confusing. Akhenaten was most likely Tutankhamun's father, And what exactly happened towards the end of his reign, before Tutankhamun took over, is pretty unclear. But one of the figures that does emerge from this murky transitional period is this enigmatic Nefenefruaten. In Aden's version of events, Nefenefruaten was a female pharaoh and the co-ruler of Akhenaten, and may very well have been Nefertiti herself. But as we said earlier, If you put two Egyptologists in a room, you'll get two different versions of events. Over to Joyce. I would see it differently. I agree totally with Aidan that at the end of Akhenaten's reign, there is a very prominent royal woman there and we don't know who she is. But I would suggest that what happens is that Akhenaten has a son, Smenkare, who marries Nefertiti's eldest daughter, Meritaten, and that he's in a co-regency with 
his father. So we have a, a co-regency of Smenkare and Akhenaten, which might entirely be within Akhenaten's reign or might just slightly extend over there. So you have an important royal woman there, Mary Tartan. And then Smenkare dies at the same time or very soon after or very soon before his father. And we get his brother or half-brother Tutankhamun coming to the throne. So I agree that there's a prominent royal woman, but I would interpret her as being Nefertiti's daughter, Mary Tartan. And we do have an image of her standing with her husband because all the rest of it, I think, is circumstantial. And I think the, 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 the one point I have trouble getting over is that Nefertiti is not born royal. Why would she take over when she has royal-born children? And this, I know this is just um, possibly me slightly putting my own interpretation on the facts, but to me, I find that a, a difficult stumbling point. So I'm interested to hear Aidan's views on it. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now things get really complicated. So Joyce and Aidan have very different scenarios for the transition of power between Akhenaten and Tutankhamun. And they both got different ideas about who this co-ruler, Nefunefruaten, may have been, and when she became powerful. There are several other figures involved in this transitional period that, at this point, I'm going to rudely bypass for the sake of simplicity. But one thing to remember about this murky era is that Akhenaten had instituted significant religious changes during his rule, elevating the sun disk Aten and suppressing the worship of other gods. And he may well have been very concerned about these changes being overturned after his death. I think at that point she transitions to being the female pharaoh Nefenefruaten simply because there's nobody else of appropriate age to be able to carry on the revolution. And then when Akhenaten dies shortly afterwards, then she then carries on as the co-ruler with her with 
with Tutankhaten. In my scenario, there was never a possibility of a non-royal woman becoming sole pharaoh, not unless something nasty happened to Tutankhaten. But it was she was to act as the guarantee of continuity in the event of the um, premature death of Akhenaten. And so in Aden's telling, Nefertiti was able to take power because of what was essentially an emergency situation. Akhenaten needed someone to ensure that his religious changes were kept up after he died. Whether Nefertiti would actually want to carry on the new religion, I mean, we, it tends to be assumed that she supported him in this, but I don't think that she would have had any choice. Um, anyone, I think, close to Akhenaten pretty much had to do what he said. So whether she would have eventually um, continued with the new religion or whether everyone would have been just glad to see the back of it, again, difficult to say. So we've got quite a murky picture then of this transition of power involving Nefertiti in some way, perhaps, moving us on from Akhenaten to Tutankhamun. As as we've outlined, there's lots of different theories about what may have happened there. But by the time we get to the reign of Tutankhamun, what are some of the theories about what role Nefertiti is playing if she's around? I think Aidan had better answer this because I think that she's either living in a harem palace or dead. (laughs) So So absence is one theory then? Yes. The other is if she is indeed Nefenefruaten, and if I am right in that actually that they that they sim- that she simply transitions from being the co-regent of Akhenaten to Tutankhaten's one, she is the one who is really pulling all the strings, because um, you know, she is the adult, and therefore this sort of triangulation of and trying sort of to get the best of both worlds almost religiously would probably have been her own um, policy, whether out of um, particular religious conviction, or possibly simply taking this as one way of keeping her and Tutankhamun alive. She's trying to steer a, a, a central course between between the two things. Okay, so it's unclear where Nefertiti was by the reign of Tutankhamun and what she was up to at the time. She may have been dead, she may have been absent, or she may have been calling the shots as the boy king's co-regent. But this leads us on to one of the mysteries of Nefertiti's life that's most intrigued historians. What exactly was her relationship with Tutankhamun? Over the years, historians have theorised that she may have been his grandmother, she may have been his stepmother, or she may even have been his biological mother. Well, we don't know what the familial relationship between them was. We can definitely I think say that because Tutankhamun came to the throne at about eight years of age and we can work this out because we have his body and we know how long he rules so we can tell when he came to the throne I think we have to absolutely accept that he's a member of the royal family because eight and nine-year-olds don't just take thrones they have to be kind of a member of that family um it's likely that he's closely related to Akhenaten in that case. Now, he could be Nefertiti's son. We don't have any images of her with sons, but at this time it's not normal to show queens with their sons. And we don't know anything about Akhenaten until he comes to the throne. Um, and he's got an older brother who we know very, very little about who, who predeceases him. So this wouldn't be at all unusual if he just popped up but was actually Nefertiti's child. Equally, we know that there are other royal women who could be bearing Akhenaten's children, And there are other possibilities that have been suggested as well. Personally, because I tend to always go for the most simple explanation, but even this one I've really struggled. And and 
even I can wake up one morning thinking one thing and then the next week think something else. I tended to think that possibly he is Nefertiti's son, but um, I wouldn't put money on it. What do you think, Aidan? I would very much agree, simply on the grounds that, you know, it also the very fact that we know she's had six, has six daughters, which suggests there's no issues with fertility or anything like that. And generally speaking, you'd expect to find the, the son by the chief wife being the person who is the next the next king so i think that that's the default position and i would agree very much agree with joyce that people who've sort of queer said well he's he's, he's not shown with her uh, are missing the fact that the decorum of egyptian art at this period shows only daughters um, we've got pictures of amenhotep iii and queen t with their daughters but no sign of either of the known sons and also it has often been sort of argued well if it's not it can't be nefertiti therefore it must be kia but kia is only ever shown with a female child so i think it's the 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 default position unless we could prove a different mother i would agree that um, nefertiti is likely to be the mother of tutankhamun I did spend some time trying to work out whether it was possible, and this is going to get quite intricate, um, if Semenkare and Meritaten were married, and Meritaten is obviously a daughter of, of Akhenaten and, and um, Nefertiti, whether Tutankhamun could be their son. And after doing a lot of mathematics, I worked out it's just about possible, I think, mathematically. This would make Nefertiti Tutankhamun's grandmother. This is something that me, Joyce and Aidan went down a bit of a rabbit hole on, in which there were lots of names, dates and regnal years flying around. We won't get into all of that right now, but safe to say, Aidan thinks the timeline is just too tight for Nefertiti to be Tutankhamun's grandmother. And Joyce is also not entirely convinced that it adds up. Even with my extended time, it's very, very tight. So reluctantly, I've had to abandon that one and I'm going back to looking for Akhenaten being the father rather than being the grandfather. But it just shows what possibilities there are out there and how you can sort of argue the evidence. Another bit of evidence is you've got this frag, these couple of blocks from a wall which names both Tutankhaten and Enkesinpa'aten as royal children. And although you could argue it's a different king, because it's king's daughter and king's son of the titles, one would suspect it's the same one. So these couple of blocks from a wall, they named Tutankhamun, who Aidan referred to by an earlier name there, and his wife as royal children. We know that Tutankhamun's wife was definitely a daughter of Nefertiti and Akhenaten. So might this inscription suggest that Tutankhamun was too? But as with all these things, it, it can be interpreted different ways. I wonder if I can move us forward now a little bit. Um, so uh, we've got all these different theories flying around. One of the, the most interesting is what happened to Nefertiti's body, whether it's been found, whether it hasn't. There have been theories that Nefertiti is buried within Tutankhamun's tomb. I wonder if you could outline those theories and tell me what you think about them. It all came down to an Egyptologist called Nick Reeves spotting that there appeared to be some marks on one wall of Tutankhamun's burial chamber. And he speculated those marks might be blocked up, blocked up doorway or doorways. Um, he then got some scanning done by a Japanese gentleman who claimed to have found cavities and even organics and metals visible through those walls. 
Then, however, three more teams did the rescanning and found there was absolutely nothing there at all. I think that's the conclusion now that there are no hidden chambers. That's what I was going to say. He published a paper on it and was was reasonably cautious on it. But then the media got involved and instantly it's being published as Nefertiti is buried behind Tutankhamun's tomb walls and so on. And it became a fact. This happens a lot in Egyptology. Um, So it's something that we're always asked about now. So we'll put that theory to bed for the moment then. But is there anything in the tomb of Tutankhamun that might tell us about Nefertiti or Akhenaten perhaps? Only if you accept Nefertiti as Nefneferuaten, because a lot of material which had been made for Nefneferuaten's burial was actually used for Tutankhamun's instead, which would imply that when Nefneferuaten died, she wasn't buried as a female pharaoh. Whoever buried her decided they weren't, they weren't accepting that she was a pharaoh, and therefore that material was then recycled and went into Tutankhamun's. If you don't agree with... Um, the Nefneferuaten equation, that is completely irrelevant. Yeah, from my point of view, there's there's nothing there. It was very disappointing when they found the tomb. They were very disappointed that there are no texts which explain the Monaroyal family. And to add another layer of complexity to what Aidan's just said, I should probably point out that one of the royal daughters is also called Nefneferuaten. So, so um, you know, that, that adds another possibility as to why that name, a family name, obviously might be in that tomb. People change their names in the past as well. So it makes it more complicated. But but certainly from my viewpoint, there's nothing there that, that helps us to sort out where Nefertiti's body is now. So where do you both think that Nefertiti might be buried do you think her tomb's still out there do you think it's lost or do you think it's been found but um you know misrepresented for me um well it depends where she died if she died at amana um i would imagine she would have been buried at amana because that was always the intention of akhenaten but i don't think she would have been left there because there seems fairly clear evidence that when tutankhamun came to the throne he emptied the amana royal tombs and moved the contents to Thebes to the Valley of the Kings, because if he'd left it behind, um, it would have been robbed anyway. And he probably wanted to recycle all the grave goods. I mean, why not? That's what people did in those days. So I imagine that even if she died at Amana, she probably ended up somewhere in the Valley of the Kings being processed. We have a lot of possible female mummy candidates. And of course, there are a lot of female mummies that haven't been found. If she moved to a harem palace after her husband died, she could, I think, um, be in one of the lost harem cemeteries. Um, but that's my view. If she's Nefneferuaten, she would certainly have died at Thebes, or at least while Thebes was the was back as being the, the royal cemetery. A possible candidate for the mummy is the so-called younger woman from tomb 35. This was found in 1898 in a tomb which had been used for the reburial of various earlier royals and was found lying alongside a body which has been identified on DNA grounds as Queen T, Akhenaten's mother. But it could be it can be argued that this young the younger of the two bodies is Nefertiti stroke Nefneferuaten. And what's interesting about that is that it suffered a catastrophic facial injury at the time of its death. This, this, this lady. Originally, the damage was thought to be down to tomb robbers, but when the body was CAT scanned, the uh, pathologists indicated that they believed that a completely smashed face had to have happened was perimortem at the time of that. In which case, if it is her body, Nefernefruaten, Nefertiti, whichever, will have died from a severe blow to the face. 
bar accident, assassination. No, we're now into the, into, into novel territory, given there's all the ifs and buts and possibilities about it. But a possibility is she died a horrible, a horrible, painful death. But before we start imagining all these scenarios in which Nefertiti may have been set upon by killers, hideously injured in an accident, or struck by falling masonry, as always, there's a caveat. There's no consensus that the younger lady mummy definitely is Nefertiti. And one of the issues is the ageing of the mummy. The highest age at death estimates, created by X-ray and CAT scan studies, put the younger lady at 35 when she died, which could work for Nefertiti. But many Egyptologists, including Joyce, think it's probably too young. And yet again, there's another twist in the tale. There's an ongoing problem with the ageing of royal mummies. When the rarest royal mummies have been aged, particularly when they were x-rayed in the uh, late, uh, late 1960s, early 70s, they all came out remarkably young. And then some years later, this is how interesting how archaeological evidence sort of can bounce around the world, a church crypt in Spitalfields in London was cleared and they did some blind te- blind testing on the skeletons which they found in that because they'd got coffin plates they knew how old they were and anybody who was over about 25 was massively underestimated by the anatomists and of course all the tables we tend to use are sort of european based for the for the for the aging of these things so if that's true of 18th and 19th century english people the modern tables don't work properly on the ageing, if we then jump back 3,000 years on a different continent. So I think there's, one has to be, to be very, very careful about being too dogmatic about what the age at death was of anybody who is probably over there, over there, over 20, 25 or so. If you do accept what was done in the, the, the more recent estimates, she's still just about old enough to have been Nefertiti. 35 certainly would, would, would sort of would work for that. It's the same problem that we have with the archaeological evidence when we look at the mummies. If you read what is, what's published in the media, you would think we've got very clear um, identifications of, of these royal mummies and we know exactly who's who. But actually there are questions over the DNA and there's questions over the analysis of the bones and so on. So nothing, again, is as, as clear-cut as the press would suggest. I always make a point of when I'm telling talking to people about these, I say, this is my working hypothesis for the period. I don't think I would ever try and insist anything is is factual. It's merely what seems to work at the moment. And a working hypothesis can change overnight. I have to say, I did that. I, I thought that she might well have died after year 12 because you didn't hear anything else about her. So I did wonder if she just died pretty much when everybody else died because there was no evidence to the contrary. And you have to keep then something else pops up, just one little tiny bit of evidence, and you have to reorganise your thoughts entirely. Yeah, well, for me, for the, well, no, the, the final proof that Nefenefruaten was a woman, because that was a debate whether Nefenefruaten was simply another name for Smenchare. And I had sort of kept with that argument. For, and then suddenly a colleague spotted that there is actually occasion where Nefenefruaten, first of all, has a female termination in her in the in one of the names but also has one on one occasion has the epithet beneficial for her husband all of which suddenly went actually this can't be a man unless you're talking about some really weird stuff going on so my entire reconstruction working hypothesis for the amount collapsed overnight when that discovery was made and i had to start from start from scratch and i think that's what people have to recognize that if they're if 
anybody out that wants to read a book on Egyptian history, particularly Amarna history, don't buy anything more than about five or six years old, because anything older than that, things... OK, it may not be grossly wrong, but think... Well, I say ten years old, but because things have checked, things change. Finally, I wanted to ask you about the legacy of Nefertiti. I think Tutankhamun's mask on the one hand and the bust of Nefertiti on the other have, have gone down in history, haven't they, as the iconic images of ancient Egypt. What do you think about the way that we've remembered or talked about Nefertiti um, over the past 100 years or so? I think the beauty of that bust has undermined our discussion of her. That she's simply a pretty face, and now she's always you know the, the you know the Princess Diana parallels and all those sorts of things. If she was indeed Nefertiti, I think she was a very shrewd politician, a capable, um, very shrewd woman. Yes, I, I agree. Um, it's a shame that we focus on the beauty quite often. When I talk about Nefertiti, it's the thing that people want to know about, and that they'll ask about her beauty routines and, and her makeup and so on, rather than actually what she did, which is a great shame. But I, I think it's both caused us to focus on her, which, which in a way that which is is good in some ways. But I think also it's almost given her a disproportionate importance as well. I think a lot of our emphasis on Nefertiti is due to the bust. And if we didn't have that bust, would we be so happy to accept her in her role as we interpret it? I don't know. It, it, it's a very difficult question. It's an interesting one. Actually, if you look at the literature before and after the discovery of the bust, before the bust is discovered, Nefertiti is a footnote. After the bust is discovered, she's a superstar. Next week, we'll be taking a look at Tutankhamun's tomb and the glittering treasures within asking what they can tell us about ruling and living in ancient Egypt. Thanks to both of my guests for today's episode, Aidan Dodson and Joyce Tildesley. Aidan and Joyce have both written several books on ancient Egypt, including biographies of Nefertiti. Aidan's biography is Nefertiti, Queen and Pharaoh of Egypt, and Joyce's is Nefertiti's Face, The Creation of an Icon. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks by Rob Attar and Rob Blackmore. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.